Afternoon, Crosswalk. And happy Easter. Are we out there? Yes. This is a weekend to celebrate because this is the weekend that we celebrate why we're here. What gives us hope. What allows us to celebrate even in the most difficult of times. We are so glad to have you guys out with us. This is round two for us. And I just want to give a shout out to all of our musicians and production team that put so much time and energy and effort to make sure everything comes together just right. So thank you, musicians, production leads, and everyone, everyone. So exciting. I get geeked out by uh, things that are all so intentional, like Sharika's flowers that she brought that matches the flowers in there. I love it so much. It's so good. Uh, but anyway, excited, you guys. And thanks for coming out to enjoy Easter weekend with us. We are excited. We are a people that live in the after. We live after the incarnation, after the declarations, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And because we've had 2,000 years of hindsight to look back on what all of the things, all the implications of what took place there, we are in a good place as followers of Jesus living in the after. But as followers of Jesus, we all like to come together and spend some time on Easter weekend reflecting on what it would have been like to live in the during, to live with those followers of Jesus that had to go through the horrible moments that led up to the cross with the disciples and those who lived in the horror of the moment, the day when everything came crashing down around them, their hopes, their dreams, their expectations, and yes, even their beliefs, the day when they could no longer see a future for themselves. Today, as we live in the after, but reflect on the during, I'd like us to do so through the eyes, through the lens, the experience of two of the eyewitnesses, characters of the way of Jesus, the people whose perspectives and experiences have much to teach us today about how to live our lives here in the after. The first, Mary Magdalene. Mary came from the city of village of Magdala. We don't know much about her. We're first introduced to her in the Gospel of Luke, where we are told that she is a part of the entourage, a part of the people that follow Jesus as he goes across the countryside preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that in addition to the 12 disciples, there were some women with him who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Luke also tells us that Mary and the other women were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Other than that and the events surrounding the cross, we don't know more than these things about Mary. But we can imagine her life, what it was like before Though it seems she had resources, she had also been a woman that had been used by demons. Seven, to be precise. And in Scripture, seven is a number of completeness. So what that seems to lead us to believe is that her possession was complete. Whatever there was of Mary prior to the possession was gone. She was in all essence biologically alive, but, uh, but spiritually, emotionally, even in some ways mentally dead. Her condition 
would have kept her separated from society. She couldn't have gone to the temple to worship. When people saw her walking down the road, they went on the other side. They locked their doors. They kept their distance with fear in their eyes. She was isolated, tortured, and utterly alone day and night. She had been plagued by these demons for so long that even when she had a lucid moment, it was hard to remember what it was like before. Then somehow, someway, her path crossed with that of Jesus. He didn't run from her like everyone else did. He didn't look at her with fear like everyone else did. He was different than anyone that she had ever seen before. Meeting Jesus would change everything for Mary. And if you think we don't have much of Mary's background, we have even less of the other character we're going to talk about, the centurion. The soldier who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. We know he would have been chosen as a centurion because he was devoted to the cause of the empire. He was deliberate and decisive in action and strong-minded, able to endure the most difficult of assignments. Likely, he was from a long line of soldiers. His dad probably was a soldier. His grandpa was probably a soldier. Civil servants fulfilling their civic duty. And sure, some days were better than others, some assignments better than others, but he always did whatever was asked of him. No questions asked, all for the glory of the empire. Of course, being assigned to crucifixion duty was not the most prestigious of positions. In fact, watching so many humans being tortured and dying the slowest death possible, it was hard for a person not to grow calluses on their hearts. But this was his duty and what the emperor needed of him. And he believed that anyone who was sent his direction was there because they were a threat to the empire and therefore had to be eradicated. Prisoner after prisoner followed the same type of journey to death. They either pled for their innocence or spit in the face of their accusers. They were either angry and fighting to their very last breath or scared to death and likely a bit of both. This centurion had likely watched hundreds, if not thousands, of men die this way. And no matter how much they, the prisoner protested, the outcome was always the same. Death. With each death witnessed, there was another death that took place. The emotions, the humanity of those that were in charge. For with each death, there was a little less of the centurion. That's how it felt to be the one in charge. Every day, every assignment, it all seemed the same. That is, until the, the day a Jew named Jesus was sent to his station to die. Watching Jesus die would change everything. Mary Magdalene. We don't know how she was healed. If Jesus touched her or if he spoke that the demon should leave, either way, Jesus had done both before. And Jesus freed her from her torment, freed her from her chains, and in an instant, the screams in her head were gone. For the first time in a very long time, she felt peace. For the first time in a very long time, she felt alive. From that day forward, Mary could be found supporting the Jesus movement. In a time when women weren't allowed to be disciples, Mary was often found in the position of a disciple, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what he had to say. And Mary, like the other women, seemed to understand who Jesus was in a way that took the men longer to figure out. But that's how it often goes. 
the women often seem to be waiting around for the men to make sense of what they already know to be true. Jesus was the Messiah. For Mary, Jesus became her everything. He was the reason she was given a second chance, the reason she was restored, the reason she had life, and she was committed to staying by his side no matter what. But no one could have imagined where his path was leading them. No one but Jesus, of course. When the time had finally come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, the 12 disciples of Jesus, the men ran, according to Mark. One of them even ran away naked. He had a very bad day. But it seems that the women stayed close by Jesus, or at least as close as they were allowed to be. After all, the women were in a threat, right? That's what their society believed. But Mary and the other women stayed close even when they didn't understand what was going on, even when their expectations and hopes were being crushed, even in the worst of times, they didn't abandon Jesus. The centurion. Though the crowd was nearly out of control that day, the crucifixion of Jesus started like any other, aside from the fact that the Nazarene was flogged before he was crucified. It wasn't necessarily uncommon, at the same time, it didn't happen all the time. And you knew that if someone was flogged before they were crucified, they must have done something pretty awful. Whatever this Jew had done, he was put to 39 lashes. The order that the centurion was given said that this man was the king of the Jews, which certainly brought a lot of questions to his mind because if he was their king, why in the world did, he want, did they want him to die? But his job wasn't a job to ask questions. His job was just to carry out orders. The other soldiers were allowed to have their fun, mocking the supposed king of the Jews, while the centurion looked on. But something else was different that day. The, this man didn't carry himself like others that were facing death, especially death on a cross. He seemed calm, regal, almost. He didn't cry out in anger or fear. It was almost as if his life was led to this moment on purpose. Though the centurion had overseen countless other crucifixions, no other man faced death like Jesus. Never once did he try to swing at one of the other soldiers. Never once did he utter a word of anger or contempt. In fact, he was mostly silent in the face of their insults, their anger, their slaps. And when Jesus did speak, he uttered what seemed like words of love and care for others. Thinking of others in this moment of horror. The centurion heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as the men nailed him to the cross. He heard this Jesus care for his mother, apparently, by saying to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the man next to her, he said, Here is your mother. And this Jesus even pushed himself up on the cross, which the centurion knew would have caused an incredible amount of pain surge through his body. He pushed himself up on the cross to take another breath so that he could encourage another criminal on the cross next to him, saying, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Through the entire event, he never saw this Jesus curse anyone. Never saw him lash out, never saw him plead his innocence. The centurion even watched 
as the religious leaders prodded him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. And yet still, Jesus said nothing to them, not one word of rebuke. Who was this Jesus? Mary Magdalene. As all of the Gospels tell us, the women were by Jesus to the very end. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary stayed by his side even when she didn't understand. When she didn't have all the answers, she never left him, never abandoned her faith. She just stayed in the one place she knew she was meant to be, by his side. When Jesus finally breathed his last, she felt like she was breathing her last too. The grief was so heavy, so real, that it began to consume her. Part of her died again that day with Jesus. The centurion. It had only been six hours when this Jesus took his last breath, proclaiming, it is finished. He wasn't sure what it is finished meant, but he couldn't get the scenes from the last six hours out of his head. This Jesus was different than any man he had ever seen before. His death, different from any death he had ever witnessed before. There was something about the way this man must have lived, and surely something about the way this man died. It caused the centurion to say something that for him came out of nowhere. He found himself saying under his breath, this man truly was the son of God. What? Now recognize the centurion was most likely a pagan, which meant that in the Roman culture he likely believed in other gods, just not the God of Israel. Undoubtedly he didn't even realize what his words meant, but they came out of his mouth as if he couldn't help it. He knew there was no way this man, this Jesus, was any ordinary man. This Jesus was otherworldly. The only thing that made sense was to say this man truly was the Son of God. There is much we can learn from the story of the centurion that we can apply to our lives today that speak directly to the moment we live in now. For we live now in a world of words. Tweets, posts, comments, threads, news, talk shows, talk radio. Our world is flooded with words and everyone wants their words heard, their opinion known, and their 15 seconds of fame. So maybe in a world of words, what we need is less talking about Jesus and more living like Jesus. More people who walk the way of Jesus, preaching the gospel always and when necessary, using words. Maybe what we need more now is not more people spouting their beliefs and focusing their opinions on others, forcing their opinions on others, but those who live in a way that is so different from the rest of the world that even those who claim that there is no God will take notice that we have been with Jesus. We need more people who embrace values that are opposite of this world. People who don't pick fights online with those that we've never met. People who don't fight in our schools or fight in the marketplace or even fight in our churches. But people who instead partake in acts of kindness to our neighbors and to strangers and to anyone in need. Maybe we could care less about being right and more about living in love. 
Maybe instead of violent seekers, we could be peacemakers. And maybe instead of slamming the door in the face of anyone different than us, we could be door openers, providing spaces of belonging to everyone who is looking. The centurion came to believe in Jesus in this brief encounter with him because of how Jesus lived even more than what Jesus said. Yes, Jesus' words are important, but they were backed by his actions. You and I are called to be otherworldly, and thankfully, Jesus tells us how. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how we help other people come to know who Jesus is, by living in such a way, by loving in such a way that others will come to proclaim, truly this person knows the Son of God. Of course, the story didn't end with the centurion at the cross. We know that after Jesus died, the ground shook. The curtain in the temple that separated us from the very presence of God was torn into. We are told that there are even people that were resurrected at the time and came out of their tombs when Jesus took his last breath. We are told that two secret disciples of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, went to Pilate and got his body, took it down off the cross and prepared it for burial, laying his body in the tomb that was meant for Joseph. And they brought with them 75 pounds of spices. That was way more than what was typically used to put with someone when they were buried. In fact, the only people that were given that much in spices were kings. It's interesting because it means that Joseph and Nicodemus, even through his death, believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Sabbath came and went. The grief of the followers of Jesus left them in a state of darkness and despair that could not be put into words. Tears, moans, and groans were their language that Sabbath. On Sunday morning, we are once again introduced to Mary Magdalene. She and the other women went to the tomb, as custom stated, to place more spices and ointments on his body. This is Mary's account from the Gospel of John. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. At first, the empty tomb added insult to injury. I mean, their Savior had died, their leader, their love, and they couldn't even grieve him because his body was gone. How could this experience get any worse? John goes on to tell us, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. This crying that she does here was the painful cry of grief. In the Greek, the word means to wail or howl with uncontainable, audible grief. We've seen this kind of weeping before. Jesus did it outside the tomb of Lazarus. I've seen this type of weeping before all too often. I've seen this kind of weeping before in classrooms and living rooms in hospital rooms as a mother or a father learn of the death of their kids siblings learn about the death of their brother or their sister I would like to never hear this cry again the story goes on as Mary looked in the tomb 
she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Either Jesus' identity was shielded from her in some way, or because of the tears in her eyes, she couldn't make him out. Jesus asked her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. At the tomb was a garden, so it made sense she would mistake him for a gardener. And it's interesting that the Apostle John includes this little detail in his story that she mistook him for the gardener because what he's doing is he's harking back to another garden, a garden where we first got separated from him. And now in this garden, there's a restoration. I wish I could have been in the garden with them in this next moment because it must have been amazing to watch. For the next thing that Mary hears is the man before her speak her name, Mary. There was something about the way he said her name. In that instant, she knew it was Jesus somehow, some way. It was Jesus standing there before her. He was alive, and in that moment, so was she, reborn again by Jesus. Inside of her, the hope she lost, restored, the grief she carried, gone. And where moments earlier, her crying was uncontainable, now her joy is uncontainable as she leaps towards Jesus. Jesus said to her, But go, find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. Jesus had done with her what he does best. He brings life to dead spaces. He turns graves into gardens. We can learn much today, 2,000 years later, from the story and experience of Mary Magdalene. She, a female, was the first evangelist entrusted by Jesus with the good news that he is alive. She had stayed by his side as a disciple, even when questions arose, even when she, she didn't abandon him, even when she doubted. Jesus remained her everything, even when she wasn't sure about anything. In a world where we are so skeptical about everything, I think that's important. Jesus remained her everything, even when she wasn't sure about anything. And she may not have been seen as a threat by the religious leaders or the Roman authority, but when Jesus came to life again in front of her, inside of her, she became an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God and proclaiming the good news of the resurrected Jesus. You too are a threat when you encounter the risen Lord. You're a threat to the enemy. You're a threat to this dying world. When you hold on to him, even with your questions and your doubts, and even when you're unsure where he is leading you, you are a threat because you too are entrusted with the good news to tell the world that Jesus is alive. Lastly, twice in Mary's life she had died and twice she was resurrected. Because that's what happens when you encounter Jesus. You come to life. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The resurrection of Jesus happened. And it happens in us every time. 
we encounter Jesus. Jesus brings to life our stories. He brings healing to our past and hope in the darkest moments. He did then, he does now as we live in the after. After the cross, after the grave, after the hurt, after the pain, Jesus is still in the business of turning graves into gardens here in the after. Let us never forget that we live in the after, and may we live in such a way that all people will know that we follow a different master than that of the world. We follow one who brings hope to the tombs of our lives, who gives us life in us here in the after. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, resurrected, holy, here with us now. Father, thank you so much for enduring what you did. We looked at those moments of the end through the eyes of Mary, through the eyes of the centurion. But to walk with you through that pain is to wrestle with things we can never understand, what it was like to be ripped apart from the Trinity. Father, that is something that we may never understand. But you went through the darkest of moments in order to rescue us, to come to life in us, to give us hope. You went through the darkest of moments so we would never have to. And you did it all because you couldn't imagine living eternity without every single one of us in this room. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for turning our graves into gardens. Thank you for giving us hope here as we live in the after. And may we go from this place and love like crazy because it is by our love that all people will come to know that we are your disciples. We pray these things in the precious and holy and beautiful and powerful and resurrected name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.